Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A Living History Production. I'm Peter Hart. And I'm Gary Bain. And together, we're Pete and Gary's Military History Podcast. Hello and welcome to this week's podcast. I'm Gary Bain and uh, we're at my house today. I've got uh, uh, Peter Hart uh, joining me this morning. Hello, Hello Gary. Lovely to see you. And lovely to see you. We've had a number of questions in from the listeners, Peter, and, and all of them are, are, are why. Why? 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 Anyway, do it. <laughs> changing the question to what? What are we going to be doing today, Pete? Well, this is part of our long, long, long-standing Arras Air War series. And as you listen to this, you might start to think, hang on, this is all about going over the top. It's Arras Air War over the top, 9th of April 1970. There's a lot of soldiers in it on the ground. And we're making a point here, aren't we, Gary? We're deliberately making the point that this is why the men were fighting and dying in the sky, to prevent more men fighting and dying on the ground. Far, far, far. Insert 20 more fars, please, Matt, here. Far, far, far. <laughs> more would die if, if the German guns, machine guns and trench weren't suppressed and the trenches smashed to buggery. Now, we've uh, covered the period, haven't we, leading up to the Battle of the 9th of April. So so presumably we're going to start around about the night of the 8th of April. We are. And on that night, that all the British and Canadian infantry, that there's, there's more than three of them, there's a lot of them, are moving up into the front line. And in the front line, they take over, they take what shelter they can find. And do you know what they're doing, Gary? They are spending for some of them the last few hours of their lives and uh, to, to give us an idea of what people were doing and what it was like that night uh, this is uh, you're going to be second lieutenant arthur warman of the sixth queen's royal west surrey regiment a filthier night could scarcely be imagined rain mud tons of it coal the lot i was just passing a small recess in the trench dug just below the parapet just large enough to shelter two men in a sitting position with their legs straight in front of them. This one was so occupied and the sacking curtain was drawn across the front. Two pairs of feet in army boots protruded into the mud outside. As I passed, I heard one of the occupants remark to the other, You know, Bert, I'd give quids to have me feet in the middle of the old woman's back tonight. Oh, what a story. <laughs> that's just, that's a... That that could go in uh, the laugh or cry book, couldn't it? That that that. If I, no, it's too late, isn't it? All right. Now, as dawn approaches, 
if anything, it gets worse and worse and worse. And this time, you're going to be at a Canadian, a young private Magnus McIntyre Hood of the 24th Canadian Battalion. That's the Victoria Rifles, Gary, in case you were wondering. It was a cold, raw morning, with sleet sweeping down the hillside. The soil on the ridge was a chalky white clay, and it became slimy and treacherous under the abominable weather conditions. We were in our jumping-off trenches, well in advance of zero hour. We were well laden with equipment and ammunition, each man carrying additional bandoliers of 303 ammunition, a few hand grenades, while Stokes trench mortar crews manhandled extra supplies of shells. We had iron rations in our haversacks, and of this, with our rifles, Lewis guns and other impediments, made a formidable load to carry on the slippery hillside. Now, so they're all crammed into various dugouts. There's a tunnels at Arras. Some people, uh, I haven't visited them yet. That's something I must do. Um, or they've just herded into specially dug or prepared jumping off trenches. Um, and in these circumstances, it doesn't matter how, how crowded, how many people are around you. People are almost on their own, aren't they? And and as as and, and I can't imagine what those last few hours are like. We we've talked about this before. How do you think they passed it? Well, different people in different ways. You'd have some with a final prayer, a daft joke, a last meal, a cup of tea, or a tot of rum. The stupid nervous tick of endlessly checking and rechecking equipment and weapons, and yet another last cigarette. Few, very few, had managed much sleep on the night before the attack. And around them, the scatter of freezing showers, flurry of snow and sudden sleep, or even sodden sleep. Sudden, sodden. Marked the onset <laughs> of another... I think they said sodden. <laughs> another wintry <laughs> sodden <soul> sleep <laughs> in the middle of that bleak spring. I mean, people don't think about that. You know, it's April, but the bloody weather wasn't It was awful. Either. Absolutely awful. Um... Uh, and I think this podcast is going out around about the, the the time. So have a look at the weather outside, see what it's like compared to this uh, snow and s- sodding sleet. <laughs> now, uh, when did they go? They're going over the, the top at five oh five thirty on Easter Monday. Easter, very religious day, Gary. Well, uh, you'll be at your prayers, I expect. 9th of April. Uh, and so after all the preambles we've been talking about all those long months of aerial preparation all the long months of the the all of the logistics which we never forget of getting everything ready this is the moment and i would say this is the greatest concentration of artillery power that the british army had amassed up to that point they 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 open up the guns that roar of the gun and and tens and thousands of shells just falling crashing down, destroying the German lines and the batteries. What do you think it's like in a barrage like that? I mean, it, it, to me, it's unimaginable. It must be like at Arsenal when Liverpool score. Yeah, the <laughs> barrage was utterly deafening, which I think is the point you're making. Men couldn't hear themselves speak and they could only cling to the fond hope that each shell that crashed down within the German lines might be the one that destroyed the bullet or shell with their name on it. Oh, a bit superstitious that. On the left of the line, uh, that we, uh, where they're going over the top, uh, the Canadian Corps. Now, that's commanded by Lieutenant General Sir Julian Bing. Uh, they're, they're going to capture Bimmy Ridge itself. Um, the troops, many of them, had moved forward into no man's land during the night and they're ready to lunge forward. Uh, and at the, the trigger point is at 0530. Two huge mines explode uh, beneath the German lines. Uh, and at the same time, 
Can you imagine what it looked like, what it sounded like? Thousands of shells drenched the German positions for just... How long, Gary? Have a guess, how long? Three minutes. You just went one, two, three and got to three and thought that would be it. Yeah, three minutes. And then what happens after that? What happens the moment the three minutes? How many seconds is that? 180 seconds. Maths with Pete and Gary. (laughs) Well, the Canadian infantry, they advanced behind the creeping barrage with the additional protection of being partially concealed by a smoke screen. Which is increasingly they're starting to use smoke screens, uh, smoke shells to create a, a screen, yeah? Now, during the crucial minutes that the troops are exposed in no man's land, the German batteries were lashed with a storm of shells to prevent them intervening. The whole idea was to gain a stunning surprise. Uh, I think the French would say a veritable coup de main. Ooh, man. La plume de ma tante. Or coupe de main, as we would say. <laughs> we would say coupe de main, yeah. Um, yeah, uh, en <laughs> Now, the top of Vimy Ridge, it's far too small an area to allow any practical expression of the defence in depth policy, with the result that the German dugouts packed with troops were all within half a mile of the Canadian front line, which was well within reach of the initial assault. Now, what what this means is for, for the, most of the German front line and, and the main positions were overrun before they knew what would happen. And once again, as we often say, you're going to be uh, Private Magnus McIntyre Hood of the 24th Canadian Battalion. It seemed as if the whole world had exploded when these mines went up tearing huge craters and leaving huge gaps in the enemy line. From where we went over the top, it was impossible to know what was going on elsewhere. We were concerned only with our own small sector. Remembering what had happened in our attacks on the Somme front, we were prepared for violent resistance. There was no rash charge, no dashing forward like a rugby scrum. We climbed out of the jumping off trench, aligned ourselves with each other, and with a steady stride, with our rifles and bayonets at the ready, started towards our objectives. The German front line had just ceased to exist. There were several bodies lying in its ruins, and there was no resistance until we had passed it, making for the second line. Now, this is really tightly organised. There's the carefully controlled pauses which allows the artillery to, to move up or rather some of the artillery to move because remember we've talked about this the artillery have a only a certain two or three thousand range over the German lines if that uh, so that the renewed barrage can fall on the next line of German trenches and then when that's happened, they move forward again, reaching beyond the ridge itself, and, and you know the area better than me, down to the reserve slopes, reverse slopes, not reverse, uh, reserve, sorry, uh, towards the villages of Vimy and Farbus. Have you been there? I have, yeah, and I've been in the tunnels as well. Have you? Yeah. You're well-travelled. I am. Chris took me down the tunnels. <laughs> now, once more, I'm going to tell the story as Private Magnus McIntyre Hood. Then we came under fire from machine guns in pillboxes on the hillside. Still we went forward, losing only a very few men at this stage, until, as if from nowhere, there came a withering burst of fire from hidden machine guns well ahead of us. We were really into it now. We halted for a short time to get our breath back and plan for the next move. Then a trench mortar group came along, sighted on the machine gun post and secured direct hits on it. We again went forward, slowly and deliberately, When we finally reached the point at which we were to halt and allow other units to continue over our heads, we were surprised to find that we had been in action for three hours. It had been hard slogging, but we had reached our objective. 
Now, what the, what's happening here? These are the, these deeper line machine guns. Although they couldn't do defensive depth, they, they they try as best they can. They're they're at the heart of the standard German defense system, uh, and they're often well well concealed inside concrete pillboxes, uh, um, so called because uh, they 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 look like a pillbox from the time, uh, and the the. The trouble, the problem with concrete pillboxes is that they're very difficult to, to 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 get inside, to break into, without multiple heavy hits. And uh, who am I going to be? Well, you're I, going, I don't know who I am. <laughs> you're going to tell the story as Private J. Gordon MacArthur of the Thirteenth Canadian Battalion. Our artillery did a great job, but it took them some time to silence the machine guns in the pillboxes, which seemed to be the only German guns firing. That's in, we must make a point of that. All our casualties were caused by the machine guns. A sergeant right in front of me got hit by a machine gun bullet, and as he fell, he nearly knocked me down. He was killed instantly. By his side were two dead Germans, one lying crosswise over the other. My first view of dead Germans, and it was pretty gruesome because one of their bodies was headless. I particularly remember one German popping up out of his trench with his hands up, pleading for mercy as I approached, giving him quite a scare with my bayonet. But he had no gun, so I motioned for him to go to the back lines where they were herding the prisoners. That's nice to hear, because we often there's all it's often said that Canadians always butcher the prisoners. This is some Canadians, just like some British, some Germans. There's no one story, is there? Uh, and, and in this case, he, he's a decent bloke. Now, for many of the surviving German infantry, penned below in their deep dugouts, the experience was one of utter confusion and despair. And this is what Private Hermann Kraft of the 3rd Bavarian Reserve Infantry Regiment has to say. We were lying on our bunks, which were swaying with the concussion of the shells. Suddenly, our electric lights went out and we lit candles. Our sergeant orders, ordered us up the stairs, himself going first. Suddenly he yells, Tommies! and fell back dead, tumbling down the steps. We all panicked and ran back into the cave and threw ourselves down with arms over our head, fearing a bomb at any second. Then one of our old hands, he was 22, came down the steps and told us to abandon our weapons and come up the steps one at a time as the position was hopeless. The English were all over us. I walked up the steps behind a corporal who was very defiant and he spat on the floor when he reached the exit. But this did him no good for he was hit over the head by a huge Tommy who was brandishing a baseball bat. I covered my head with my hands and closed my eyes expecting the same. But the blow did not come. Perhaps it was because I was so young. Looking at the soldiers, I noticed that they all had their faces blackened. I was prodded in the stomach by one with a bayonet and told to keep my hands on my head. Now, this is interesting because we often hear some sort of nationalist stuff about how the Germans feared the Canadians, they feared the, the devils in skirts, they feared the Australians, they feared this. Uh, what do they call them all? Call them all English. And, and, and that's the truth of it, because to the Germans, they're, they're just the enemy. Uh, that doesn't mean the English, they fear the English. It just means they, they don't like the enemy and they call them all English. And uh, in this case, they were, in fact, Canadians. They were Canadians. They, they're fa this bloke's facing Canadians. Well, what's happened to, what's happened to the Germans upon Vimy Ridge then? Well, they're, they're, they're in effect trapped by the speed of the advance, hard on the hills of the creeping barrage. Now, only on the northern flank sector was there a problem where the interlinked defence of the Pimple and Hill 145 held up the whole of the 4th Division for most of the day. 
It's still, now we want to emphasise this, uh, it's Canadian historians we don't like, not the Canadian court. Well, speak for yourself. <laughs> well, I don't like them, and they don't like me either. Um, but but the, the Canadian court is a fantastic, it, it, it is uh, a benchmark. With the Australian court, it's a benchmark, the Anzac court, sorry. Uh, it's a benchmark of, of quality. Uh, yeah, and, and it had been a magnificent achievement. Oh, definitely. In essence, the Germans had been blown off Vimy Ridge and the Canadians had had the pluck and drive to take advantage before the Germans had any sort of chance to reorganise their defences. Well, what about the counterattack? Where's the German counterattack? Well, they're marooned some 20 miles from the front line and by nightfall, the British grip on the ridge had been firmly consolidated. So who's won this battle then? Well, together, the Royal Artillery and the Canadian Corps had won a brilliant victory. Now, I'd add another to that. Uh, who, who, is, uh, who is the handmaiden of the artillery? Well, we've said this on a number of occasions, the Royal Flying Corps. So the Royal Artillery were more effective because of the work done by the Royal Flying Corps. Yeah. And th- this is the point of this podcast. Uh, um, yeah, you can't suppress the enemy's artillery if you don't know where it is. And you don't guide the shells exactly into it, onto it, into the very gun positions. Now, um, the, the Canadians have done well, but this is what annoys people about the the the. the it's often called the Vimy, the Battle of Vimy. It's not the Battle of it's the, it's the, it's the Battle of Arras. And actually, the Third Army, alongside them, in some ways, did even better. It's not as dramatic an achievement as taking Vimy Ridge, which the French had battled and had been slaughtered on for months on end. But it is important that the Third Army did really well. What have they done? Well, on the southern portion of Vimy Ridge, alongside the Canadians, the Scots of the 51st Highland Division of Third (laughs) Army, they kept up with their neighbours, the Canadians. They initially encountered problems with uncut uh, wire and German machine guns, but soon surmounted them to charge forward deep into the German defences. And this is what a private S. Bradbury of the 1st, 5th Seaforce Highlanders has to say. Aye. <laughs> no accents today. Too serious, isn't it? We traversed many trenches which were very deep, but not, did not encounter any active German except those wounded and killed. That's the shelling, of course, isn't it? One German was knelt in the trench, rocking to and fro with his head in his hands. I do not know whether he was saying his prayers or pegging out. He means dying. It was a work of art pulling our feet out of the sticky mud to clamber over the men laid in the trenches. By this time, we were hopelessly mixed up and in in the trench, along with two others and myself of our battalion, were Gordons, Argyles and 6th Seaforce. On the near side of the crest of the hill was a deep trench in which some splendid, in which were some splendid dugouts. Into these, many of the Germans had crowded so that we had them bottled up. Close behind the point where myself and another had dropped into the trench was one of these dugouts. At the entrance to which was laid a dead German and another was just coming out. He immediately put, put up his hands in abject fear on seeing our bayonets waiting for him and began talking wildly in his own language which we could not understand. One of our officers came along, and after placing us one at each side of the dugout entrance, he endeavoured to make the German go back into the dugout and bring out his companions. But the Bosch was not having any... any, any, And with a face as white as a sheet, appealed to us not to send him back. 
Our officer therefore rolled into the dugout a smoke bomb which exploded and filled the place with smoke. Within a, within a few minutes out came three big Germans wearing gas masks and spluttering and fuming. As, as soon as they came to the top, up went their hands. Now that's quite merciful because a lot of the time they would have uh, mopped up with uh, hand grenades, hand grenades Mills yeah. bombs, a couple of Mills bombs in there. Yeah. So that's quite, quite decent. Uh, mopping up, they called it. Why is it important to mop up? Well, because you couldn't take any chance that you, you were leaving uh, parties of German soldiers behind you who could re-emerge and shoot you in the back once once you'd passed on to the next objective. But it's a brutal business, isn't it? It is. Uh, many took a little too much pleasure in uh, gleefully tormenting the hundreds of German soldiers caught carrying in their deep dugouts. And this is what Private William Hay of the 9th Royal Scots has to say. We got to the German frontline trench. It was smashed to bits, but there were several dugout entrances. We dealt with these first. I pulled the pin from a Mills bomb and chucked it down the steps. Come out, you fuckers! <gasps> there was a crash followed by shouts and screams. Jock Leishman threw another one in for good measure. Crash! And another. Come out, you bastards! Up the steps came four Jerrys with their hands up. Camarade, camarade, they wailed. Never mind the fucking camarade. Let's have you bastards out now. Prodding them in their bellies with our bayonets. Keep those hands up, we shouted. They were terrified and grovelling. Two of them were youngsters who started to blubber. I suppose they thought we were going to do them in. We got them out by the scruff of their necks and directed them back to our lines, giving them a boot up the arse each to help them out of the trench. Now, I mean, that was a much more brutal business than the chap who threw a couple of smoke grenades in. That this, I mean, those three were lucky to survive. And you know what? They were quite lucky to survive even then. And it's, it's a brutal business, isn't it? It is, but, you know, and, and forgive the language, but you can imagine everybody, everybody, the, 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 the Brits and the Germans are completely on edge at that point. And it's completely understandable. I want to get the, pardon the expression, fuckers out. Yeah. Yeah, that's absolutely. Now, as we've said, the capture of Vimy Ridge, that, that was, uh, the, the, the Highlanders were involved in that. But the, 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 the this is just really securing the left flank of the main assault, the real assault by the bulk of Third Army. Now, where's that thrusting towards? Well, you like a bit of thrusting, I know. Yeah, and I, and I like um, the Scarp Valley as well. And uh, that was the direction, both sides of the Scarp Valley towards Morshi. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at bluenile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. 
In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The pro. Now, what's carrying it forward? It, it, it's pretty obvious from all our story. What's, what is it? What is the essence of, of why they're succeeding? Why they're getting forward? Well, it's the naked power of the massed artillery, uh, the Third Army hammered into the German line. Now, this is in sharp contrast to what we often, well, to the, to the 1st of July, 1916, because uh, this time the German counter batteries are successful. They've or even been, the British counter batteries. What did I say? The Germans. Oh, getting muddled It would been a up. disaster if the German counter batteries <laughs> yes, would have been successful. No, this time the British counter batteries, they're really successful, and that's thanks to the Royal Flying Corps. The, the, the German batteries are either destroyed or neutralised. <laughs> neutralised is a wonderful expression. Uh, by enough shells falling around the gun position to make it impossible to work the guns to any real effect. Um, and uh, this is it. At the Somme, there was hardly any counter battery work. They'd concentrate on the shells. Uh, now, I'm going to be someone else. I'm going to be a, an officer, aren't I? Yeah, Not- this is what Lieutenant Kenneth Page of 130 Battery, 40th Brigade RFA has to say. There is no doubt, whatever, that a lot of the early success on that first day was due to the fact that, that we had really got the German artillery right down. I happened to be the forward observation officer with another officer, and we had not the alarming day we expected, but an extremely interesting one. We actually got into a tunnel near Arras Station, and we emerged in no man's land five minutes after zero hour. To our great amazement, there was practically no German artillery fire, whatever. Undoubtedly, a great deal of this was due to the intense gas shelling that had gone on the previous nights. In fact, 36 hours later, when we were advancing ourselves and we saw a convenient German position, we found it stank so much of the gas we had fired that it was still unusable. That's, uh, that's uh, well, 36 hours, one and a half days later. Now, only occasional shells fell amidst the exposed advancing infantry. What a contrast that is to the first day of the, the Somme, where there's masses of 5.9 shells crashing down on no man's land, and in the German, uh, the British, British German, they're all the same to us, uh, frontline trenches and support trenches. Yeah, wow. Now, any prospective German counterattacks were destroyed by the overwhelming British barrage before they had a chance to take shape. Wow. Well, that, that, that must have, can you imagine? Uh, it's an endless, endless, seemingly endless rain of shells falling amongst them. And, and if you were a, a, a German soldier in, in an isolated group, you, you'd lose your nerve and you, 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 you tempted captivity. If you could negotiate a, a captivity, that would, that would, that would save your life or it might. Because um, there they are, the British assault batteries are smashing their way forward and they're overrunning trench after trench. Um, it's not easy, though. Uh, do you think the Germans just give up everywhere? No, not all German resistance had withered away. And this is what 2nd Lieutenant Arthur Warman of the 6th Queen's Royal West Surrey had to say. The Hun was trained to fight. This was brought right home to me when I was moving forward with my platoon to our objective. A Hun was lying on the ground just ahead of us, apparently very dead. 
I had passed him and was amazed that, with such life that he had in him, he twisted himself over and fired an automatic pistol at my Batman. He was fortunately too far gone to find his mark, and it was his very last effort. But what stamina and what hatred. And when he says uh, it was his very last effort, I think we all know what that means. Uh, by the way, uh, I've noticed this from watching TV, that it doesn't matter how many bullets you fire at Batman, you'll never hit him. It, it's quite surprising, isn't it, that uh, he's firing at the Batman and not the officer. You know, poor, who'd be a Batman, eh? <laughs> well, yes. Now, uh, so... This is the thing. Although it's a successful attack, they're losing a lot of lives because they're, 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 they're for instance, the thing, there's one place, the interlocked system of small fortifications that defend Battery Valley. That's one thing. There's others though. Uh, I'll tell you one I've just remembered. Well, see if you can guess what that is. Well, is it the uh, imposing embankments that anchored the railway triangle fortifications? You've probably been there, and I have. I've, I've, I've spent very little time at Arras. So many and, and Gallipoli. Oh, I love it. I love Gallipoli. Are you coming to Gallipoli? I'm coming it? to Gallipoli. Who Ooh. else is coming to Gallipoli? Come to Gallipoli with us, May sixteenth. Anyway, um, the, you when you when you. So when you read, you know, this is a great success, but when you read or listen to personal accounts, it's full of of losses, people dying, it, the, the, thousands of men are still being killed and wounded in, in gaining these successes. And uh, what, 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 what is it? What, what makes, what does this make you think? Well, it, it certainly uh, places the casualties suffered by the Royal Flying Corps, which were terrible, but they're placed firmly in context against the, the losses that, that were... Um, happening on the ground. Now, on the right of the attack, the troops facing the, the Hindenburg line proper, which uh, uh, it begins just north of Nouvelle Vitasse. Uh, and they're, they're assisted by some tanks, uh, several, not that many, I expect, to crash through the wire. That's always the tank's greatest boon to an attack, taking out the barbed wire. But they also could knock out any machine gun posts they encounter. What do you what do you what what do you think of the Mark One and Mark II tanks that are being used here? Well they're certainly not the super weapons of myth and legend. They they were mechanically unreliable. Their armour wasn't even proof against ordinary bullets, and they had a, a, a distressing tendency to ditch in rough ground. Now, this reminds me a lot of your performance when we visited Stanhope in Weirtown. <laughs> rough ground, and you, you were mechanically unreliable, and you ditched. <laughs> I did. Now, despite all this, when they managed to be in the right place at the right time, and that in itself was an achievement... <laughs> They proved an important element in the steadily developing all-arms battle. Not there yet, but it's on its way, It's isn't on it? its way. Now, Private Richards was in charge of one of the six-pounder guns that each male tank carried in its sponsors, because you had male and female tanks, and the male had the, the, the six-pounders, and the uh, females had machine guns, I believe. So you, you had this, I've got a six-pounder. You have got a six-pounder. Now, this is what Private Archie Richards of C Battalion Heavy Brigade Machine Gun Corps had to say. There was a terrific bang on the sponsor and a piece of metal struck me in the mouth, smashing my two front teeth. Spitting out the blood and bits, I carried on firing the gun. Suddenly bullets came flying into the tank and we all threw ourselves on the deck. They whizzed round like bees for several seconds. Then we hit his main trench. As we went into the parapet, we all hung on and then down came the tank on the other side. What a bang! It almost jarred my head off. 
Well, I shot straight down the trench and skittled the Jerrys who were running like hell. Now, that's for me. I mean, I'd be out of action if someone broke my front tooth for teeth and with a blow that hard. And then, and then, it's another reminder: the tanks aren't bulletproof. And when you see you, you see things like those chainmail masks that they used to wear, they're designed to try and protect them from the sort of thing that was flying around inside the tank. Well, bullets could get in, but also you, you, you're right there. Fragments to stop the coming fragments, off, yeah. uh, that break off, and uh, yeah, wow, uh, that's a, a great story. Now, so the troops are pushing forward. Uh, are the Royal Flying Corps doing anything to help in this part? Yeah, I mean the contact patrols and artillery observation aircraft—they're flying above them. Any surviving German batteries were bound to open fire now the moment a decision had come and the core aircraft would be ready to record their locations and call down immediate retribution. Now, this is what Captain... You're going to be Captain Eric Routh, or Ruth, Routh, of 16 Squadron Royal Flying Corps. My job was to direct the artillery and let them know which enemy batteries were in action. This was done by sending down what was known as a zone call. By this signal... A certain number of batteries would fire on the target indicated and go on firing till I told them to stop or they had expended their quota of ammunition. It was grand to see them answering and the Hun getting hell. I managed to send down 14 calls on active batteries, which was great fun. After 10 minutes, shells could be seen falling all round the located batteries. The gunners are bursting with joy. I should think that our casualties from German artillery must be small as every time a battery opened fire, it was immediately zone-called and shelled to hell. Now, I want to make this point. He's flying a BE-2C, or I think he said, it, but it's one of the variants. It's, it says, he says later on it's BE-2C. When people say, what's the most effective First World War aircraft, there's a very real chance to BE-2C-E-F-G or, or, or the RE8 later on. They're the ones, they kill far more Germans. Could you imagine how many deaths Captain Eric Routh was dependent on, bringing down 14 zone calls on, on German batteries? Now, 2nd Lieutenant Charles Smart, uh, also of 16 Squadron, he was up early that fateful morning. This is a, a great quote. This is a humorous I love Charles Smart. Infantry went over at 5.20am this morning, so I was sent up on uh, NF patrol, spotting flashes. Terrific wind blowing and as bumpy as Satan. First passenger soon got fed up with things and passed me a note saying he felt sick and wanted to go home. I passed a note back reminding him that there was a war on and telling him to think of the poor devils down below. He said he couldn't stand it any longer, so I brought him in after an hour and 35 minutes and he cleared off. I got another observer, Lieutenant Boyle, at once and went up again. This chap was a real thing. He felt very sick in the bumps, but did not say anything about it. Now, how would he know he was really <laughs> sick? Mm, vomit everywhere. We had a great time and sent down a number of zone calls and had the satisfaction of seeing several active enemy batteries strafed and silenced that I'm being strafed by Freddy. <laughs> His bottom's very close. <laughs> and... Strafed and silenced, thus making things easier for our infantry. Our shell fire today was worth seeing. The enemy lines were simply seething with bursting shells and it looked, Jesus, impossible for anything to live there. It's impossible for anything to live here at the moment. God. 
bloody dog. Now, of course, lovely doggy. They're severely hampered in their work by the appalling weather that we've mentioned. Oh, snow. When they were caught in flurries of snow, it was almost impossible to function properly. And uh, this is what Captain Eric Roth of 16 Squadron has to say. The B-2C has a very open cockpit, very drafty, so that the snow came in from all angles, covering the windscreen completely. The alternative was to put my head out to see where I was going. In doing this, my goggles became covered in snow. If I took them off, snow got in my eyes, and they watered, so there it was. The only way I could see was to hold my hand in front of my face so that I could see downwards and occasionally slightly forwards. Not sure how much good he's doing in that condition. Now, um, the, 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 these men are incredibly brave, and and uh, they're, they're, they're down on the ground, some of the artillery observers in the forward observation posts, they could see what was going. They could see some of these flying men up in their BETCs and the rest of it up, upstairs, as you might call it. And I'm gonna. Uh, say what, uh, Lieutenant John Line of 64th Brigade Royal Field Artillery, what he says, it's, it's this. Saw three planes brought down while I was up observing this morning, two of ours and one Hun. Two of them came tumbling down in flames. One of our observing machines was suddenly attacked by two fast fighters. Vainly it circled and dived trying to get to the ground. Suddenly it burst into flames and fell headlong, then righted itself and blazing fiercely tried to land. But all at once it crumpled up and smashed to the ground. A mass of flames. What a horrible oh. death for those people. Uh, but nonetheless, this is the sacrifice those Royal Flying Corps people are making for the people on the ground. And they know what they do. Charles Smart references it. Uh, in his quotes, you've got to do it for the lads on the ground. That we're doing it for the, you know, it's it's a it's not a useless sacrifice. Now, about mid morning, Lieutenant Alan Dor was oh, ordered no. up in his sop with one and a half strutter. Oh, that's all right. I've been practicing. <laughs> not one and a half inch strutter. No, though. and this is what Alan Dor has to say of Forty Three Squadron. Fortune favours me. I'm detailed to do reconnaissance alone. Arrived at lines at 10, clouds about 2,000 feet. An amazing sight, giving the impression of enormous industry. All along the Vimy Ridge, a white line of bursting shrapnel told me that we had reached the summit. Below the contact patrol and artillery machines swept backwards and forwards. Little shuttles. Behind me, a string of observation balloons peered weirdly into the smother of smoke and cloud. I climbed above the clouds, better to observe. No enemy machines to be seen. Far below, behind Vimy, I locate by flash the position of one or two hostile batteries fired, firing like tired men. Uh, the, the observation, we haven't mentioned them much. The kite blows, they're, they're fixed. The great advantage of them is they can just stay up. Unless they're shot down by the enemy, they just stay there. They don't go up for an hour or two. They're there all the time. Now, uh, the men on the ground, they carry on pushing forward. So, uh, well, now, well, there's a new tactic. Here again, there's a bit of a new tactic. What is it? Well, they're doing really well. Following in behind the initial attack were two more divisions used to leapfrog over the assault divisions we and carried the assault forward. Exactly. We Sorry. Now, amongst the fresh troops were the regulars of the 2nd Essex Regiment. At first, they found the going relatively easy. And this is Captain Robert Moneypenny of the 2nd Essex Regiment. 
The barrage kept a, a wonderfully even line, a curtain of continuous fire about a 100 yards ahead of us, creeping forward at a walking pace. They've got better at that, of course, since the saw. The smoke and fountains of earth helped to conceal our advance a little, as well as tending to diminish any fire from snipers, machine guns, or any entrenched infantry that might be in front of us. We've gone about 500 yards when two field guns of German artillery, hidden in a dip across our front, suddenly opened fire, point blank at us. We took them in one concerted rush after they'd bowled over a few of our men. A few of the Germans who resisted with small arms were bayoneted. The rest had their hands up to surrender. Mm. Now on and on they went, overrunning German defensive lines, capturing the villages of Arles and pressing on towards the next objectives. Now... This is an in, this is a very interesting point. So, is it is it is this the have we discovered everything we need to know about how to be a successful attack, or is there something that the British High Command still have got to learn? Uh, something very difficult. What 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 is it? Well, they they realised that uh, the generals and their artillery experts they hadn't yet discovered the complete answer to the endless conundrums of trench warfare. Now we've mentioned this before on a number of occasions. Big Dipper. The bulk of their guns were the 18-pounders and four-and-a-half-inch howitzers of the RFA, which had a limited range of around 6,500 yards at best. Now, as the guns had to be positioned at least a couple of thousand yards behind the British lines, this meant that once the infantry had gone forward further than around about 2,000 yards, they lost the gunner support as they moved out of their range. Now, we've mentioned some batteries would be moved into no man's land or across no man's land even, depending on how far they've gone, uh, as quickly as possible. There's still going to be a drop in artillery support, isn't there? Would you not say? Yeah, because it was only some that could be moved forward. And uh, the the level of support available to the infantry did significantly drop, uh, drop as they move ever forward to attack new targets. Now, there's a problem. They're now approaching these new targets, the new Germ- the, the German defences. What's the problem about these German defences that's not the case about, the, say, the first two sets of trenches they'd overtaken? Well, they, they're, they've effectively been spared the day-by-day pulverising from the mass, mass British artillery over the previous weeks, purely because they're out of the range. Yeah. Uh, and naturally, the garrison troops were comparatively fresh compared to the battered front-line troops. They were battered to buggery, I think. is uh, That's technical. a technical term. It is a technical term. We often use it. Now, as the British uh, weakened, because, you know, it's hard fighting, Pete. Yeah, they're suffering. Ca- even though it's going well, they're still suffering casualties. Yep. So the Germans, who are well ensconced in defensive positions, they are gaining in relative strength and you're going to continue the story as captain robert moneypenny our own artillery had ceased to function or we were so far ahead as to be useless to us until they had moved forward then within sight of our last objective the green line we came under really heavy fire Undaunted, we pressed on. Men were dropping faster here and the gaps were filled up from behind. We moved steadily on with the casualties continually increasing. When within charging distance, we rushed at the barbed wire, which to our dismay we found almost untouched by our artillery and at least 30 yards deep. Of course he was untouched. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Now going to ground, they considered the situation until a small party on their right discovered a gap in the wire, and after the most vicious fighting, they captured the position. But still, 
they went forward. Pushing forward. And this is Captain Robert Moneypenny again. The enemy fire was very heavy now, especially machine gun fire at long range from Greenland Hill beyond the Hyderabad Redoubt. Our right flank, after a desperate assault, captured Fampu, but our centre and left got a heavy mauling and were held up until further reinforcements reached the line and pushed on. The German shelling was now becoming very heavy and in our last dash towards Hyderabad Redoubt, what felt like a thunderbolt struck me in the region of the heart and I went down in an agony of pain. Oh dear. Uh, badly wounded, I'm afraid. Now, the redoubt was eventually captured, but the wounded Captain Moneypenny was already on his way back to Blighty. It got one consolation. What was that? Well, he'd been part of an unprecedented advance under the trench warfare conditions of some three and a half miles. Uh, but certainly, as far as the British are concerned, this is new ground This is in two ways. But it's a, it's, it's a big step forward for the British, isn't it? And do you know what happened to him once he got back to Blighty? Does yeah. he survive? Yes. Because you've interviewed him. No. Oh. <laughs> I, don't, I think he wrote a book. <laughs> I think he was a pilot before. Hmm. Uh, it may be someone that's. We've not name. come across. Uh, I'll have a look and I'll check it out. It'll be interesting to know what he did. Now, uh, so so what's happening? Where are we then? So we've got through some lines. So what? Where? where what? What's? This? I mean, so we're doing. The British, not we. The British are doing well. So what's the situation? Well, the Germans—they're almost, almost running out of completed defensive lines, but not quite. That that this is the way with the Germans. That, it, but it's a bit like in rugby when you think you almost reached a try line and the, the defences seem to redouble. Uh, the rugby union, of course. Um, Never heard of it. No. Now the British needed a further fresh surge. One more push. One, one more, more push. push. If they were to isolate or capture the key village of Moshi Le Pro, and they needed it quickly. Why? Well, they needed to do it before the German reserves and counter-attack divisions could move forward to plug the gaps. Now, why, why can't they use tanks? I mean, what about the much-vaunted ta- tanks? Tonks. tonks. The, the, the tonks were a new weapon, which uh, I believe uh, ne- were never... They were the French again. ones, were yeah. they? Tonk. Tonk. Yeah. Well, they're out of the question. There's, there's far too few of them. Uh, they were... Too slow. Most um, of them would have broken down by this time. In any action, they're a one-shot weapon, if you see what I mean. Yeah. Not, not one shot, as in gun. But you can use them once, and then the crews are knackered and they break down. Now, the only exploitation strike force at the disposal of Allenby was... The cavalry. He used to be the cavalry uh, commander. Now, they'd been moved up so often in battles over the last two years, only to be doomed at disappointment. Uh, disappointment battles that they'd been concentrated far too far to the rear. Is English your first language? <laughs> no, I'm Scottish. <laughs> yeah, it, this is a perverse thing. That they that that this is the chance that I'm not sure that if they would have been, I think they might have been shot to ribbons. Uh, but but that this time when there was a breakthrough, they were t- concentrated too far to to the rear. You can't do right for doing wrong. They'd learned from experience not to concentrate them too far forward, so they concentrated further back, and then they break through. And it's gone. The Germans swiftly moved forward with their reserves. They plugged the gaps and they reorganised their defences. Tomorrow, 
Would be another day. Well, well. So, what's our overall view of of uh, the Aris is a strange battle. The first day is quite a success, but uh, yeah, they, I mean, they've done they've done well, haven't they? They have done well, but part of the credit for those achievements, as we've said throughout this series, lies with the airmen who had sacrificed their lives during bloody April. Ooh, but Pete. April's not over yet. Yeah, this is the 9th of April. And the, the, remember, the Battle of Arras is all about waiting for the German offensive, the great G- Robert Nivelle German offensive, which was on, oh my God, the 14th or 16th of uh, April. I've just momentarily... It, it, Robert Nivelle German offensive. The Robert Nivelle great offensive <laughs> against the Germans. <laughs> So, oh, well, English isn't my first language. <laughs> Gobbledygook is my first language. No, so th- th- this is a diversion. Now, it seems to be working, but uh, it-, it won't go on much longer, surely. It was only a couple of weeks, uh, only a week to go before the great uh, French assault, and then they can all go because the- the- Nivelle had promised success. The- and there was a lot of faith in Nivelle at that time. Uh, from some people, not from yeah. Haig. 48 hours, he said, it'd be all over. Uh, egg and chips in Berlin. Yeah, I was referring to uh, political support. Oh, yeah, those bastards. Cheers, Pete. Cheers. Thanks for listening to the show. Blah, blah, blah. If you'd like to support blah, us, blah, you can now buy us a coffee. Blah, blah, Visit www.buymeacoffee.com backslash PGMH. Or... Visit www.blahblahblahblahblah. And we'd be jolly grateful. Cheers. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook to learn more about each episode. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you have a couple of options. You can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee forward slash pgmh or consider subscribing to the podcast for only £2 per month and get ad-free listening and bonus content. You can find links for both on our Facebook and Twitter accounts. Sounds great, doesn't it?